Great. Hello. I spent most of this morning um, fluctuating between thinking I bought completely the wrong talk to give here and thinking, nah, it will be all right. So uh, we'll see how it goes, really. But um, so normally I do a lot of stuff for the HEA, Higher Education Academy, on engagement and stuff like that. And I have a sort of a stock talk about uh, basically using crass and filthy examples in the stats lectures. And I sort of thought that wouldn't be the appropriate talk to give here. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the hallowed halls of Oxford and everything. Um, so I kind of went for a slightly different tack. And uh, then, like I said, I spent this morning thinking, maybe not. However, fortunately, uh, I, I do have... Uh, I do have a picture of a rotating penis, so I can lower the tone a little bit. Now, essentially, what this so this this session is supposed to be about, you know, engaging uh, students that are harder to reach, and um, I'm sort of shoehorning that theme a bit into into something slightly different. So, what penises mainly, but there is a, a rationale. <coughs> So I'm going to sort of split the talk into three parts, one of which is talking a bit about why I think we should be conveying a message to our students about loving statistics. I don't mean in a literal sense, but you know, why they should appreciate that statistics is a useful skill to have. And I think embedding that quite early on is a useful way to get some of the uh, more cynical uh, or scared students kind of on side from the beginning, because if, if they can see some point to why they're doing it, then maybe they'll kind of stay along for the ride. It's not guaranteed, obviously. Then I've got a section on trying to look at maybe some of the reasons why a lot of students hate statistics. And I should say, I mean, in psychology especially, there's quite a big literature around students not liking statistics and how we can make it more bearable for them. And actually, you know, it is, it is kind of a minority. And I think it's easy to lose sight of that when I mean, I have cohorts of about 200, and you're much more likely to remember the people moaning about how boring and tedious your course is than you are the, you know, the groups of students who actually think it's going all right. So it is worth stressing that it's what we're trying to do really is obviously engage all of them, but some of them are quite engaged and motivated anyway, and it's, it's really kind of there's a group who get lost, but they are maybe actually the minority, not the majority, possibly. Uh, and then part three is to, uh, I'm going to talk about how I think we can structure, how in the past, in psychology at any rate, and this is why I was getting nervous because I suddenly realised there are no or not very many. Are there any psychologists here? There you go. <laughs> not many in the room. Um, so I'm not entirely sure how relevant this is to anyone, uh, but anyway. I was going to talk a bit about how I think historically, because obviously what we tend to do is we get taught statistics and then when we get, you know, we pull out the short straw at our job interview to uh, be the statistics lecturer, we tend to sort of do it the way that we were taught. So you've got this kind of historical inertia to change things. And the way in psychology that stats is often taught is, I think, in, it promotes confusion. Let's put it that way. Um, so I'm going to try to argue that if you embrace your penis, um, then that's an acronym for something, in case you're wondering, uh, then you can simplify things really to five concepts that, if you understand those, basically, you should understand pretty much everything. Uh, and they also happen to have the acronym of PENIS. Okay, let's see what we So, we don't have sound here, so listen closely to my computer. What is non-coding DNA? DNA doesn't code for a protein. 
also, apart from the fact we'd all like to look as handsome as David Tennant, we'd also uh, all like our students to be as keen and enthusiastic and motivated as those students. So how can we do that? Well, uh, like I said, in psychology, I think there is uh, a bit of an issue of students feeling sometimes that, that statistics is kind of tagged on as, a, as some kind of like torture that we want to inflict upon them for no other reason than the pure joy that it gives us to inflict pain upon uh, young people. So I kind of, I don't actually teach first year, but even when they come into second year on my module, I do this whole sort of thing about why they, uh, or not they should, you know, they can do what they like, but why statistics is a useful skill to have. And I try to make the point that what statistics gives you uh, and research methods generally is it makes you a scientist in a sense, or it makes you able to critique and do science. Which means that that can make you different to an intelligent layperson. So these are some intelligent lay people, they are my parents, neither of whom had a formal education uh, beyond about the age of 15, they both dropped out of school as soon as humanly possible. They're quite clever people, uh, but they don't know bugger all about science at all. Um, on the other hand, they have a son, actually they're two, uh, and both of us ended up being sort of scientists, although my brother made the sensible decision to then go and work for a bank and earn a lot more money. Um, and, you know, we, we have different skill sets, so I, would, I wouldn't say that I'm more intelligent than my parents, but I have a skill set that they don't have as a result of learning about statistics and research methods. Now, why is that useful? Well. There was a, a very good, I can't remember whether it was a book chapter or a paper now, but there was this paper came out in 2003 that talks about the core skills that any statistics course, this is not in psychology, it was just generally, the core skills that a statistics course should convey to students. It's kind of like a, if your students walk out with these skills, then you've sort of done your job in terms of them having some useful life skills. Um, there were seven of them in total. I think I've only got five of them on the slide, which were the five most relevant to psychology. But I think basically a psychology course uh, would pretty much give students all seven. But it's things like being able to know when you can and cannot infer causal relationships. That's an important life skill, potentially. Things like knowing that having a statistically significant effect is not the same thing as having a practically important effect. There's a difference between finding no effect and finding no statistically significant effect. Some general research method things, so an ability really to be able to look for bias in surveys or bias in experiments. Um, so just a general sense in which you could critique research. And understanding that variability is natural and that normal is not the same as average. Now, the example I use here, because I'm of a certain kind of age, lots of my, um, lots of my friends are having children at the moment. Um, Sorry, I'm smirking because last time, last time I showed this slide, I ended up going down a road that I really shouldn't have gone down. So I'm not going to go down it again. Some of my friends are having children. And, um, you know, as their children grow up, uh, a lot of them are not psychologists, so they're, they're, you know, they're not plotting their, their infant's progress in quite the way that I'm sure I will if I ever have children. But um, they are, um, you know, they do get very concerned if their children haven't done certain things at the point in time when they think they should. So you get sort of two effects going on here. One is, oh, you know, my child walked before they were supposed to, they must be a genius. 
uh, or the opposite is my child's not walking now, is there something wrong with them? Now, obviously it's natural to worry about things being wrong, but a lot of this stems from not understanding that there is natural variability and you know, if you're looking at the average age at which a child does something, that's a point estimate and you don't really need to worry until they start getting a few standard deviations either side of that. You know, if they're a bit quicker, they're not, you know, they're, they're not geniuses. They might be geniuses, but they're not geniuses just because they're walking a bit quicker. That's just part of, you know, what variability is all about. So, you know, that's, well, you know, maybe whether or not you're an obsessive parent is neither here nor there, but it's a useful life skill to just know that, you know, things like averages are point estimates and that, uh, you know, there will be variability around that estimate and, uh, and, and stuff like that. So those are five skills that I think are particularly relevant to psychology. Now, in some research that's been done, um, if you ask psychology students whether statistics is generally useful to know about, uh, a whopping 7% of them will agree that it is useful. <laughs> and um, if you ask them, well, sure, is it useful for psychology, then that only goes up to 16% of them. So at least according to this study, and there's some more recent evidence uh, that, that actually it's not quite as bleak a picture as this paints. But a lot of students miss the point that stats is important. So they, they really don't see uh, that it's a useful life skill. So can we make them, make them, can we uh, help them to see the light? One of the things I do is I have a few of these. So I'm just going to look at one because you don't need to know every single example that I use, uh, is to use an example. It sounds like you might do a similar sort of thing of taking something that's been in the paper and unpicking the science behind it and how your opinion and views on it might change as a result of having a scientific view. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't get all Ben Goldacre on their ass or anything. Uh, we just sort of look at, you know, how accurate is the newspaper portrayal and, you know, can be accurate, can not be accurate. Um, this is because in psychology it's about 85% female. Um, so I picked a, as I said, I picked my wife picked for me a nice female-oriented example because I always turn to her when I'm trying to generate examples for women because you know I'm a man, don't really know much about women. Um, and she came up with this story from a few years ago, which was about the contraceptive pill. So you can see. The headlines in the newspapers are things like taking the pill may lead to permanent loss of sex drive. And I'm going to pick in particular on the Daily Mail, again, not because I'm trying to be Ben Goldacre, but because that is the paper that my parents read. So if I'm trying to illustrate that I am somehow better equipped to evaluate this story than my parents, then that's a good comparison to make because they would read the mail and you know I would read the scientific paper. So what did the Daily Mail say? Well, they said, women may suffer a permanent decline in sex drive after taking the contraceptive pill. That was the kind of main headline. A uh, number of sexual dysfunction effects are associated with the pill, including dull libido, but until now it's always been assumed that they were reversible and cease to be a problem as soon as women come off the pill. The new research suggests that the effect on libido might be long-lasting or even permanent. A team of American researchers, that's some stuff about methodology, which is, uh, I don't really need to repeat. Scientists measured levels of SHBG, which is a biological marker that is, in theory, associated with libido. Don't ask me for a technical description of it because I don't really understand what it is or what it does, but I don't need to to evaluate this paper. It's another useful point to make to my students. You don't need to know everything. Um, so those levels were measured uh, every three months for a year, and they found that they were seven times higher in users of the pill than in women who had never taken them. 
and levels declined in women who stopped taking the pill but remained three to four times higher than they were in those who had no history of using oral contraceptives. So what might an intelligent layperson think? Well, a couple of years ago, uh, I got my sort of new intake of first years. It was a pretty small sample. So take these percentages with a large pinch of salt. And I gave them some statements to endorse having, so I just gave them the Daily Mail article to read and then, and then there was like some tick boxes of what they agreed with and what they didn't. So 80% of them agreed that levels of this uh, hormone thing were seven times higher in users of the pill than women who'd never taken them. I mean, that's a statement in the newspaper. <coughs> All that means is 20% don't believe what they read in newspapers very wisely. Um, and uh, about a third of them thought that although levels uh, of this hormone uh, were three to four times higher than women who'd never taken the pill, this is not a meaningful difference. So only 33% of them accepted that you know, that difference, even though it may be statistically significant, might not be meaningful. This sort of potentially slightly worst case scenario, um, a third of them, I mean, in a way, this is a positive thing that only a third of them thought it caused a permanent loss of libido, but a third of them, one in three, still believed that that was true. Uh, half of them believed that it caused sexual dysfunction, which was not anything even actually mentioned in the newspaper. Um, women taking the pill are at risk from permanent loss of libido even when they stopped taking it, 83% endorsed that. And 100% of them thought that this was a, an important enough issue that GPs should inform uh, women of the findings before prescribing the pill. So let's have a look at the data. So here are the data from the study. This is the baseline phase of the study. You've got three groups, continued users of the pill, people who are going to come off the pill, and people who've never used the pill. Ignore the bit in the middle, that just confused things. Uh, and this is essentially a follow-up that was at least 120 days later, uh, but this is one of the issues. It, it was variable across participants how long the follow-up was. So um, I've got, um, I apologise, this is going to be very patronising, but I've got a simplified version of this graph just because I nicked it out of another talk and I didn't remember to eliminate the simplified versions. So essentially, we've got this... Uh, measure here of libido, it's, but it's not a direct measure of libido, right? It's just a sort of biological thing that may or may not actually be related to libido. So uh, this would represent sort of normal levels of, uh, of SHDB and this, so this is like normal libido, this would actually be lower libido, so higher levels of SHDB relates to lower libido. So if you've never taken the pill, this one has a baseline, your libido is normal. And when you're followed up, it's still pretty normal. It doesn't change as you would expect. If you're on the pill, it's, your levels of SHGB are high and they stay high. So your libido is lower, it stays lower, as you would expect. So the critical thing in this paper is what happens in the women who stop taking the pill. And what you can actually see is far from uh, having you know, permanent loss of libido, the levels of uh, SHGB do drop fairly dramatically after they come off the pill. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there still isn't a problem here, but it does show that, you know, there's some way off the people who've been on the pill. There is quite a massive reduction in levels of SHGB that is not reflected in the newspaper. Looking at this in a slightly different way, the two main findings of the newspaper report was, uh, first of all, although they don't, they don't really say very much about it being a baseline, which is slightly misleading, but anyway, uh, they make this big thing about um, levels of SHGB being seven times higher uh, that in those who stop taking the pill compared to those who never take it. And that's relating to this finding here. So this is just the baseline difference between uh, those never taking the pill and those who've stopped. So it's 
seven times higher. Well, I don't know about you, and I will admit my mental arithmetic is not great, but if you divide 209 by 42, you do not get seven, you get around five. So where has that seven come from? I really have no idea. I've read the paper. There's nothing uh, that I re remember seeing in the paper that talks about seven times higher. Maybe they've phoned uh, the scientists and done an interview and the scientists said something like, well, you know, the biggest difference in an individual was seven times higher. You know, that, that's possible. If you take like the highest scoring person in this group and the lowest scoring person in that group, maybe you get a difference of seven. I don't know. But anyway, basically the, the whole seven thing is bollocks. The other effect they talk about is um, levels of SHGB being three to four times higher uh, in these two groups, and that's referring to the follow-up data. So this is, in a way, the more important finding because this is after the people who were on the pill have stopped taking it. And again, these are the levels you get, so 80 and 35. Uh, I'll probably round it off a bit, but um, that's more or less what you get. Again, if you divide 80 by 35, you do not get three to four times. You get, you know, 2.2-ish. So. What I say to my uh, incoming psychologists is, you know, if taking the contraceptive pill was something that you were doing or you know, wanted to do, and if you were concerned about having a permanent loss of libido, because, you know, for some people that might be a good thing, I'm not sure. But if that's the sort of thing that worried you, then rather than just reading the Daily Mail headline and thinking, oh my God, I can't take the oral contraceptive, otherwise I'm, I, you know, I'm going to lose my libido forever and it will never come back ever again ever um, what I could do is go to this paper and actually read the science and make a judgment for myself about what the risks are so the psychologist copy editor this is psychologist undergrad copy editor might rewrite the Daily Mail article a bit like this so women with sexual dysfunction because they were all enrolled in sexual dysfunction clinic which the newspaper did mention in its kind of method section uh, but you know it should probably be flagged how you know how much can you generalize these results because they're in a, a fairly specific population to uh, to begin with so they may suffer a permanent well it's not really permanent is it because people are only followed up three to six months the longest follow-up period was a year but uh, the vast majority of participants were followed up only for three to six months which is not quite the same as forever is it if three to six months were forever we would have all died a long time ago uh, decline in, well, is it a decline in libido? We don't know. It's, it's a decline in a marker related to libido, but you know, there's going to be some, there's not going to be a direct correspondence between that marker and your levels of libido. And maybe if you want to make claims like this, you should measure sort of subjective libido or something like that, which has its own problems. But you know, if you take the two in combination, you'll get something quite useful, maybe. What the paper said, a number of sexual dysfunction effects are associated with the pill, including dull libido. Until now, it's always been assumed that these are reversible. Now, what you might add to that is, and in the current research, levels of SHBG did actually decline after coming off the pill. So this assumption of reversibility is the data to suggest that, to some extent, it is. But, you know, we still need to look at the sort of follow-up differences to, to see whether there might be some kind of problem. Uh, blah, 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 and then they reiterate this point about things being permanent, but, you know, again, you might want to stress that what was actually measured was a uh, follow-up around three to six months. The scientists measured levels of SHBG in the women every three months for a year. Well, some of them for a year, actually the average was three to six months, and found that they were seven, in a parallel universe where seven equals five, <laughs> times higher at baseline. At baseline, not after they come off the pill. They don't stress that this finding is a baseline finding. 
Levels declined in women who'd stopped taking the pill but remained three to four times higher in another parallel universe where three to four means 2.29 than those with uh, no history of taking oral contraceptives. However, another thing not mentioned in the newspaper article, if you read the paper you'll find out, is that the discontinued group were followed up for 73 days less than the never users. So you're not comparing like for like. Uh, they were followed up much sooner than those who had never taken the pill. Now that may not be an issue because those who'd never taken the pill, their levels didn't really change much anyway. But the fact still remains that we don't know, had, you know, had we let the discontinued group carry on for another 73 days, well, what would their levels have been like then? You're, you're still, you know, like I say, you're not comparing like for like. Finally, you might want to flag that subjective libido is never compared. So all we really know is about this biological marker. And, and you know, there's a whole other question around how closely that relates to those women's subjective experience of uh, you know, having libido or not. So uh, my main point is, I think, we can use examples like this you know, that are on topics that students of the age group and you know, I'm not saying this is the best example you should wheel out across the, you know, any discipline or whatever, but uh, you know, to psychology, psychology students in my university, this is quite a good example because they'll be interested in this sort of thing, potentially. Um, you know, there are probably areas of America where you wouldn't necessarily want to use an example of uh, contraceptive pills. Okay. So part two is why do students hate statistics? Uh, I've got another, another little video that you won't be able to hear, so maybe I should just skip that. Uh, why do they hate statistics? Well, it's because we often throw up things like this at them. So this is my kind of montage of hideous equations that an undergraduate psychologist might see. Now this would freak anyone out, really. It's not nice, it's not pleasant. We had a discussion about this morning about whether we need equations, and well, I think sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Um, and like Manfred, I minimise the amount of equations that I use, but I do use some. But I think really what I'm trying to illustrate here is that students get bombarded with lots of different stuff. So they see different tests. And you find in textbooks things like this. Uh, this is taken from my own textbook, which is a decision tree to help them to work out which test, because obviously there is only one correct test that you use in a given situation, uh, and it's imperative that you pick that, select te that correct test, because if you don't, then what happens is God strikes you down with lightning for being stupid and picking the wrong test. So all students like to work themselves up into a frenzy about getting the right test. And they use decision trees that idiots like me stick in the back of their textbooks to help them to make that decision. So we then might give them uh, a little quiz, something like this. So this is a, a zombie-related quiz. Um, one of the things I've noticed at Sussex um, is that the zombies on campus and the humans tend to have different lunch decisions. So uh, when I'm sitting having my lunch in the tea bar, uh, you know, I'm often a bit bored and I like to look at what other people are eating. And uh, I've noticed that, or I think, because we serve two types of chips, Chips made out of potatoes and chips made out of brains. And just sort of casually, I thought over a few lunchtimes, it seems like the zombies, uh, you know, like the emeritus professors and stuff, would um, like to choose the brain chips more often than the potato chips. But, you know, the, the humans seem to favor the, the potato chips over the brain chips. So what I did was I collected some data. I sat there for many lunchtimes. It was better than doing any real work. 
and uh, I collected, you know, so he, these are just frequency counts of whether the person's a human or a, a zombie. That's, you know, it's quite easy to tell. Um, but I had a little, obviously, you know, categorization set of criteria, how smelly they were, how green they looked, whether any of their limbs were kind of rotting and hanging off, that sort of thing. Um, so I classified them as human or zombie, and then I watched whether they picked brain chips or potato chips. So, and then I constructed this grid. How would I analyze these data? I'm assuming that someone in the room is going to be confident enough to give me the answer. Chi-square Chi -square test. Thank you, you're very compliant. Um, so you ask this to a group of students who've done first year research methods, because uh, as I said, I get them in second year, and they will say, you do a chi-square test. And you say, well done, excellent, chi-square test. Let's do a chi-square test. So you do a chi-square test, and you say, okay, well, here's the chi-square test. What p-value do we get? We get a p-value of 0.121. And then you say, well, maybe we could do a Spearman correlation. They go, oh, no, we can't do Spearman correlation, because it's, uh, it's all frequency data. You can't use Spearman correlation when you've got frequency data. And you go, well, what do you think would happen if we did a Spearman's correlation? They go, well, I think probably the bowels of the earth would open up and <laughs> Satan would rise from his hellish grave and take all of our souls. And you go, okay, well, let's do one then. <laughs> so you do a Spearman correlation, you go, oh, that's funny. You get basically the same p-value you know, within rounding error. And they go, oh, that's funny, isn't it? And you go, yeah, what do you reckon happens if you do a Kendall Tau B? And they say, well, we've never heard of that. We haven't been taught it. So, well, humour me. Let's do one anyway. You go, oh, look, you get exactly the same p-value as well. And they say, well, what about Pearson correlation? You definitely can't do Pearson correlation on frequency data because it's got all those assumptions that you learned about last year. So if you do that, everything's going to go hideously wrong. Oh, no, it doesn't. You get exactly the same <laughs> p-value. Okay, what about a t-test? What do you use a t-test for? And they'll stick their hands up and they'll well, actually, no, they won't. They'll be silent for quite a while. And then someone very brave will sit there and go, well, you do a t-test to compare differences between means. You go, yeah, you're absolutely right, you do. Have we got any means here? No, we haven't. We've got frequency data. So what's going to happen if we do a t-test? It's all going to go horribly wrong. Or it's going to give us exactly the same feedback. <laughs> you go, what about linear regression? How about linear regression? Can we do that? No, 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 you can't do that. Are you mad? What is wrong with you? <laughs> oh, you get the same result. What about a Wilcox and Mann-Whitney test? <laughs> same result. And you can go on and on and on. What about Kruskal-Wallis test? Yep, same p-value. <laughs> what about logistic regression? They say, we don't know what logistic regression is. And you say, no, and you won't, because we're not going to teach it to you. But if you did know how to do it, you'd get the same p-value. <coughs> what about ordinal logistic regression? <laughs> same value. What about one way ANOVA? Oh, look, same p-value. What about a linear mixed model? Same p-value. Discriminant function analysis? Same p-value. And then you say, well, why? When you see one of these diagrams, do you, you know, instead of worrying about all of this, why don't you just draw the diagram a little bit more like this? So basically, whatever you want to do, it's just a generalized linear model. Now, as people who teach statistics, we know this, and yet still, uh, and I was guilty of this until quite recently as well, we separate everything out into different things. So what the students are having to retain is lots of information about lots and lots of different tests. And I'm not saying that teaching everything as a GLM does not have its own pitfalls, but there's an element in which it's, I would say, simple. It's reducing everything to a fairly simple idea. So now I just wanted to, in the latest edition of the SPSS book, I have modified this to uh, you know, it's a halfway house between what people expect and what you should get. So, the GLM, why is it a useful thing to teach? 
looking at uh, so in the SPSS book and in the R book the one way I know is taught with an example uh, all about Viagra so it's, it's basically a, a randomized control trial type of example so you've got a control group uh, who took a placebo and then you've got two uh, dose groups who had different doses of Viagra and your outcome is uh, participants libido in the ANCOVA chapter this example then gets uh, extended to include a covariate of partner's libido. So that's the, that's the basic setup for some of what I'm going to talk about. So I say to them at the start of the course, you know, you've, got, there's lots of, you've already seen lots of equations in first year, um, but actually you can probably forget all of those equations and as long as you understand this equation, that's kind of pretty much all you need to understand. In any you know, aspect of you know, most of the statistics that anyone uses across lots of disciplines, you're interested in predicting an outcome from a model. And that model gets more or less complicated depending on what you're trying to do. But you fit a model to try and make predictions about some outcome variable that you're interested in, and there will be error associated with that prediction. And if you understand that, then basically you understand everything. Because anything you might want to do basically boils down to that. So a mean. You're trying to predict an outcome and you're trying to predict it from a point estimate. So you're, we'll call that estimate B for argument's sake. So you're predicting it from a point estimate. You're not predicting it from other variables, you're just trying to predict, you know, kind of uh, what the, I'm going to say what the average is. That's just crap way to describe the mean, but anyway. Uh, you're trying to predict it from a, a point estimate. There's no other predictive variables and there'll be error associated with that estimate. So if, for example, we took our ages and worked out the average of what they were, I don't know what that would be, but let's pretend we're all young and lovely and our, the average age was 21. Uh, if you then predicted my age as being 21, well, you'd be wrong. There'd be some error attached to that. I'm actually only 20. <laughs> what about correlation? Well, you've still got the same basic idea. You're making a prediction of the outcome, uh, but this time you've got a predictor variable and it's got a parameter attached to it which tells us something about the relationship between those two variables. Now, I mean, this is, this is just R, that's what you would get out, but I've called it B again to be consistent. And again, there would be some error associated with that prediction, but you've still got the basic idea of predicting an outcome from a model and you have some error attached. And obviously, if you extend that to regression, this then becomes the regression equation that people are familiar with. So you've got an outcome being predicted from a predictor, but because this predictor is not in standardized units as it is in the correlation, we get another parameter that we have to estimate, which is just a parameter telling us what the value of the outcome is when the predictor is zero. But the same, you know, you've got the same principle applying. What about a t-test? The equation's the same, it doesn't change. You can teach a t-test and you say, well, it's exactly the same, it's just now our predictor is group membership, whether they're in one group or the other. And you know, you can talk about dummy coding and and stuff like that. But essentially, you're still latching on to an idea that you could have re reiterated over week after week. So they've got this idea of outcomes predicted from model plus error. You can build that up in a correlation, then build that up again in the regression. And by the time you get to t-test, you're just going over the same ground again, but you've changed the nature of the predictor. Then you can do uh, multiple regressions and add in several predictors. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying you have to do it in this order, I'm just trying to make the point that they're only learning one equation that just expands and contracts depending on the complexity of what you're trying to do. ANOVA is the same equation again, so they've really still only learned one equation. ANCOVA is exactly the same equation again, it's just one of your predictors will be a covariant. 
Um, so in the, in the case of the libido example, we can estimate libido as, a, as an average thing. It's just a, a point estimate that will have some error attached. We can look at the correlation between uh, the dose you get and libido. We could do that in regression. We could do that as a t-test if dose was uh, you know, representing different groups of people. Do it in a regression where you know, maybe we had something like uh, partner's libido as a second predictor, which would be equivalent to ANCOVA. And we can represent ANOVA again by just having multiple predictors where we've dummy coded in the way that you need to dummy code. So my argument would be that this keeps everything straightforward because you essentially teach them one thing and you keep reteaching them it over and over again. So it, it should hopefully get drummed into their head. Now obviously there's a downside to this as well, which is they might just get very confused about why you call it regression in one context and, and over in another. And you know, when you have to start saying, well, because of weird historical reasons in science, because loads of social scientists didn't realize that Anover and regression were the same thing, and so have separated them out. And then because they did that, SPSS separated them out into different menus. They just say, okay, that's crazy. And you go, yes, it is crazy. Um, you can do complex things like moderation and uh, factorial ANOVA. Again, you've got to say, I've, I've started putting A's and B's because I couldn't fit the word predictor in. Uh, but essentially, moderation you can represent in the same equation again, but you've now just got an interaction term in there. Factorial ANOVA will be exactly the same as I just said. Repeated measures ANOVA. Again, it's the same model, but you just, I mean, it does get more complicated here. And, uh, I'm not suggesting teaching repeated measures ANOVA in this, using this equation because it's a bit of mind-blowing but essentially you've got extra error terms in there to deal with the fact that you'll have within participant uh, variability and same multi-level model multi-level model is uh, basically the same as a repeated measures type over in terms of how it's represented as an equation so you know it, it I, I think it sort of keeps things simple because you're asking them just to learn a very basic thing and then you're building it up according to the context in which they're using it and you know this is another thing that I do with them just to demonstrate that if you you know if you do something through the ANCOVA menu of SPSS and do it through the regression menu you get the same results like you literally get the same results you've got values here for the overall fit of the model which will be um, uh, sorry not for the overall fit of the model for the fit of adding in a variable that corresponds to the F value for that variable in an ANCOVA uh, and also it's the same as what you would get here that's represented as a T statistic because T is, is basically the square root of F. Although those values aren't the same, if you, if you square that value, you, you get the value of F. Uh, and things like this, like your overall fit of the model is the same as the overall fit of the model in the ANCOVA. And if you look at the, uh, again, the individual t-test of the parameter for partner's libido, Again, if you square it to change it from T to F, you get exactly the same value as in an ANCODE. So, you know, it, you know, it just, just illustrates the point. So, part three. It's a good question. Can we make it less scary? So I think the, the GLM is, a useful way to simplify things. And this is, this is now like my grand finale of why it's even more useful to do it, I think, possibly. Um, which comes down to this PENIS acronym. You don't have to use the acronym PENIS, but I basically have the mind of a six-year-old, so I like to talk about penises. Um, 
So I think basically if you understand one model, that simple idea of prediction from a model with some error, then I think arguably you understand them all because you're just expanding and contracting the same set of principles depending on how complex the things you do are. And I think you can understand what a GLM is doing and, the, and how it's applied to hypothesis test by knowing just five concepts. Now, obviously, some of these concepts have you know, other concepts that attach to them. But essentially, I think all you need to know or all you need to understand as a student is what parameters are, how estimation works in some vague conceptual way uh, that's not very specific and certainly doesn't involve equations, Null hypothesis significance testing. I'm not even sure you really need to know that, but uh, I think the chances of that getting ejected from the curriculum are pretty slim at the moment. Um, intervals, confidence intervals, or interval en estimation in a general sense, and standard error. If you know those five things, then I think you understand everything, as well as that equation at the beginning of outcome equals model plus error. Oh, I've got another penis. Isn't that fun? So, parameters. Parameters are going to be hard to understand though, aren't they? Because it's kind of a confusing word, parameter. It sounds like it's going to be tricky. But most people understand a mean. And it's pretty easy to explain a mean. So therefore, the mean is a parameter. It should be pretty easy to explain a parameter. So when I'm teaching students what a parameter is, I always start with a mean. Which is, uh, you know, just so you collect some data. The example I use is not surprising out of the textbook. So this was the number of friends that five statistics lecturers had <laughs> and it's quite a low number <laughs> yeah no zeros it's an oversight um, so uh, well, you know I don't need to tell you how to compute a mean but um, sorry essentially my main point is that you know students can grasp what a mean is how to calculate it it's a simple bit of math even if you put the equations in and it's a parameter it's a, it's a classic example of a parameter so you can start then teaching them about the mean as a model. So this goes back to what I said at the beginning, you know, you're predicting an outcome from a model with an error. So the mean in itself as a single parameter is a model. You can make predictions about how many friends someone has by knowing the mean. It's not necessarily going to be a good prediction and that's another useful point to make. There's going to be, uh, you know, some kind of measure of fit that you associate to that to tell you whether it's uh, likely to be an accurate estimate or not. But you have this parameter. So in this case, it's 2.6. You could ask a statistic, or you could meet a statistics lecturer. You could guess that they had 2.6 friends. But there will be some error attached to that. Maybe they only have one friend, and you know, you've, you've overestimated how popular they are by 1.6. But the point still remains that you know, you've got this basic idea of prediction uh, from a parameter, uh, or a model that is defined by, by parameters, and uh, it will have some error attached to it. In some cases, your model might be a perfect fit. So, uh, for example, this is a case where the mean would be a perfect fit, and that's where all the values are the same. So, uh, I, I do resort to things like ratings on Amazon as examples quite a lot because uh, it's really it's easy data to get hold of, and you know you can adapt it accordingly. Uh, and this is some data ratings of a Britney Spears album. It's probably a bit of an outdated example now because probably the students I'm teaching now don't even know who Britney is. Uh, career is in decline um, but this is you know you can then illustrate well this is the mean rating uh, I can't remember what it is it's three, three point something or other is that representative of the, the sample of ratings that she's got well no it's not really because you know she divides opinion somewhat people love her people hate her 
Um, and you know, there's, there's not that many people scattered in the middle. So the mean is not really representative of what's actually going on in the data. So that's, you can then start moving on to, you know, you have a model, you can make predictions, but you need to be interested in the fit of that model. Is that a good fit or a bad fit? And you can just see here without you know, resorting to any kind of numbers, you can see it's not a very good fit. It doesn't really represent what's going on. So you've already then got them thinking about models and the fit of models and how important that is. Which can bring you on to how you might calculate error and uh, looking at deviations. So uh, looking at you know, what your model predicts, what scores you actually got and uh, how they deviate from each other. So this is back to our lecture example with the number of friends they had. Again, it's very easy to understand. That's the model, that's your prediction, and these are the errors in the model and the, and the prediction. And of course, when you start moving on to regression, this is a very familiar sort of diagram uh, for anyone looking at regression lines and trying to explain you know, what, what, the, what residuals are and things like that. So you're basically already with the mean starting to get them thinking about deviations or residuals or you know, the 15 other terms that people have come up with for exactly the same thing. And you can start to get them thinking about, well, we, if, if, we're, if we're looking at fit and we're trying to assess fit with these res residuals or deviations or whatever you want to call them, then um, you know, some of them will be positive, some of them will be negative, and you know, we square them to get rid of that whole problem, and uh, that gives us things like sums of squares. And of course, if you're teaching regression and the sums of squares crop up all the time, so you, you know, you're, you're already sort of preempting lots of concepts that they're going to see time and time and time again. Now, estimation is more tricky, um, but again, if we stick with the mean as a very simple example of a parameter or something that defines a model, then you can, again, illustrate the general principle of ordinary least squares processes. Um, doesn't, obviously, if you're going to go down the route of maximum likelihood, this is not going to work. But, um, so we can say, well, we've seen, we're making a prediction number of, uh, of an outcome, which is the number of friends. There's going to be some error attached to that prediction, and we have some kind of parameter uh, that we want to use to make that prediction. How do we get the parameter? So how do we work out what it is? And you say, well, we use ordinary least squares a lot of the time. Um, and they say, well, how does that work? And then you think, oh, I don't really know because it involves lots of matrix algebra. But you can explain the general principle behind it, which is imagine we didn't have some whizzy equations to work it out for us and there weren't clever statisticians who'd you know, kind of told us that if you do it in this way, you get the right answer or an optimal answer. Um, let's imagine we had to do it manually and just like pick numbers out of thin air. What would happen? So let's rearrange this equation a bit and work out what our error is. So for what, for different values of b, how much error do we get in the data set that we've got? So for example, if I decided arbitrarily that b was going to be the value 2, these are the, the values of the number of friends I actually got. For every person, we're making a prediction that they had two friends. Here's the error associated with that prediction for each person. And because you know, we've already got around this whole idea of needing to square everything, these are the squared errors. So we can add them up, and that tells the total amount of error for that value of b. And then, and then well, what happens if that value of b had been 1? Well, you can get a whole different set of errors, square them, add them up, and you'll get a, a slightly different value to that. And you say, well, imagine. Years ago, before uh, you know stuff, before stuff, uh, you were doing this all manually, and you all, just imagine you're really bored one night and you can't get to sleep, and you think, "What can I do? I'm going to try and estimate a parameter manually." 
um, and you plug all these numbers in and for every number, every conceivable number you could think of, you plug it in and you work out what the error in prediction would be by using this sum of squared errors. What would happen? And then they say, well, you know, obviously, we're, you know, what would happen is we'd stab ourselves in the head with a big knife because that would be so <laughs> tedious. And you say, you're, you're right, it would be tedious, but I'm so sad that I have actually done it and I'm going to show you what happens. So what happens is for given values of b, you get certain amounts of error. And those, that, the, the error kind of converges on an optimal value. So if we'd said, let's imagine the beta, let's imagine our average, our parameter was zero, how much error would we get? You get sort of, I don't know, let's probably get one for 40 units of error. What happens if we change it to be one? Well, we get less error than we did with zero. So one's better than zero. We get less overall error, but we still get quite a bit. What about if we put two? Well, then we get even less error. It's, you know, it's, it's much more. So two's better than one, which is better than zero. What about if we put five in? Well, we're back up to having shitloads of error again. Uh, four is better than five, but you know, worse than two, so on and so forth. But the, the point is, this is a very easy picture to understand, which is that for different values that you could possibly use, you end up with an optimal value, the value that gives you the least error. And then you say, uh, so when you hear about ordinary least squares, the least in it is because, or the least squares in it is because it, it's the value of the parameter that gives you the least squared error. And thankfully for you, you don't have to put random numbers in and draw a graph like that to find out what it is. There's some whizzy maths that will do it for you, and uh, there you go. The point is, you can get across a complex idea like uh, what ordinary least squares does without any equations and just with the general principle that what you're, you know, what you're doing is converging upon an optimal value. But that optimal value might still be you know, rubbish, but it's still it's kind of the, the best that you can get using that form of estimation. So if you understand parameters and you have a broad uh, understanding of estimation, so you know kind of where they come from, then you can start talking about the standard error as a way of, uh, you know, I'm assuming here that they've had some sampling theory in the first year, but essentially of showing how parameters, whether it's a mean or a, a regression coefficient or a correlation coefficient or whatever that parameter may be, will vary across samples. So there's a, a kind of a, a holy grail of a value that we would like to know uh, what it is, but we don't. So we take samples to find out what it is. And the value that we get of that parameter will be different across different samples. And the standard error gives us some idea of how variable the parameter is in those samples. So if you've got a big standard error, it means that your sample parameter, your sample mean, or your sample beta, if you're doing a more regression type thing, is, um, sorry, standard error is big. That parameter is going to be variable across samples. If the standard error is small, that parameter is going to be less variable across samples. Therefore, small standard errors mean that your sample is more representative, or the parameter in your sample is more representative of the population than uh, if you have a very big standard error. So, uh, if you understand standard errors, then of course you, uh, you need standard errors to calculate p-values and you need standard errors to calculate confidence intervals. So anything that you uh, apply to a standard error in terms of the fact it could be biased or influenced by things, if it influences a standard error, it's also going to influence a confidence interval because a confidence interval uses a standard error. It's also going to affect a p-value because most test statistics involve the standard error in some way, shape or form to compute them. So you can start talking about confidence intervals. So uh, you know, explaining that any you know any parameter is a point estimate, and uh, your confidence interval, which is based on the standard error, gives you some idea of what the actual value in the population is going to be. But it gives you a sort of a range of values rather than a point value. 
so I'm not going to explain what confidence intervals are to you because you know, you know what they are, but I'm just trying to illustrate the point that understanding the standard error, because confidence intervals are computed using it, gives you a nice link. And if you uh, have explained what confidence intervals are, you can start getting students to think about how you could test hypotheses. So if confidence intervals are representative of the of values in the population, then if they overlap or don't overlap, what does that tell us about, uh, say, differences between groups or differences in the parameter between groups? And you've got you know, nice little diagrams like this that give you some idea of how much overlap in a confidence interval you would need in order to get, say, a, you know, a p-value of 0.05. So you can start merging it all in to anything you're teaching them on p-values. But also, I think it's quite useful just to have them think about things visually. So this is an example I use of 10 studies that have all done the same thing, and this is plotting differences between two group means in this study. And you get students to look at this and say, uh, well, here's 10 studies, they've all looked at the same effect. I will normally create some scenario of, of the two groups that they're comparing and what that's all about. But uh, it is you know, basically just, these are differences between means. So you say, well, if you have zero, that means there's no difference between the group means, right? Anything bigger than zero means that you know, one means bigger than the other. And anything smaller than zero means that the, you know, the, mean, the means have switched around in terms of which one's bigger than the other. So zero is your sort of point for there being no effect at all. And here are the p-values associated with these differences. And you say, is there an effect? Is there a difference between the two groups? And most of the time, in fact, probably pretty much all the time, they tend to come down on the side that there isn't an effect because, and I've done this quite deliberately, there are four p-values that are less than 0.05 and there are six that are not. So generally, if they're weighing up whether there's an effect or not, they sort of go, well, there's six non-significance and four significance, therefore there's not, there's not an effect, right? That's the logic that they use. And then you can say, well, you know, these, these dots, right? These dots or squares, they represent, you know, the, the point estimates of the mean difference. So they, they represent whether the, the, you know, one group's bigger than the other or vice versa. And zero is the point at which uh, you know, there's no difference. So how many studies have shown a difference of zero? And they go, well, none of them have. None of them are on zero. And you go, okay. So they're all showing that there is some kind of difference. Uh, how many of them show a difference uh, you know, less than zero? And they go, well, none of them do. So right, so what you're saying is you've got 10 studies testing the same effect in the same way. All 10 of them tell you that this group is bigger than that group because they all fall on the same side of zero. So, you know, that's quite consistent evidence that there might be something going on. This often leads me into meta-analysis as well, but anyway. Um, so the point is, this is, if you ignore the p-values, this is showing a very consistent pattern, which is in some studies, the population values are estimated, you know, are likely to be uh, bigger than zero. But in all studies, the sample estimates are, uh, you know, the, the, the same side, the same side of zero. And then you can get them thinking about how sample size might affect these things. And, you know, would you place more, more trust on your conclusions if, uh, you know, what if I was to tell you that, say, this study or these two studies were based on a sample of, you know, three people, whereas all these studies on this side were based on samples of five million people, which ones would you trust more? They go, well, the five million ones, because, you know, the bigger the sample, the closer it is to the population. And you go, right, so you can start getting them to think about how confidence intervals and how 
comparing confidence intervals across studies can tell you something useful about a sort of accumulation of evidence. And that's all from the, the basic idea of what a confidence interval is. And of course, if you must, uh, you can also teach them some null hypothesis significance testing. So any model will have parameters, and any parameter has an associated distribution that tells you the probability that you'll get parameters at least as big as the ones that you've got. So that can apply to a parameter such as a test statistic, uh, you know, T or something, but also to like betas in regression. So you can start, again, you know, just showing how, by knowing about models and parameters, you can start testing hypotheses about whether those parameters are the same or different or bigger than zero or whatever. And I think one of the things I like about this is I think the, the, uh, the, I think there's a lot of simplicity to it. Maybe there's not. I don't know. Maybe we're sitting there thinking this is not simple at all. It's just massively overcomplicated. But I think this is quite simple. Um, and you get a sort of snowballing simplicity in that if you understand about parameters and models and standard errors, then you can start to teach quite complicated things in a very simplistic way. So for example, looking at assumptions of um, parametric tests or so-called parametric tests, um, you can start saying, well, because you always get these questions like when does homogeneity matter and when doesn't it matter? And well, if you understand what a beta is or what a parameter is, and if you understand what confidence intervals are and standard errors are, it becomes quite easy to answer these sorts of questions because in large samples, you will not get biased parameters even when you have uh, heteroscedasticity or heterogeneity of variance because the confidence interval, uh, the central limit theorem kicks in and they will be normally distributed as long as your sample is big enough. So that whole sort of... Uh, uh, assumptions of normality and homogeneity variance going out the window with big samples if all you're interested in is the accuracy of your parameter. However, if you're interested in how optimal your ordinary least squares estimation is, then it does become important. The other thing to know is that if you're interested in confidence intervals and p-values, then things like heteroscedasticity and heterogeneity variance will bias the uh, standard errors. So your confidence intervals and p's will be biased. But it enables you to give a framework for saying what it biases and what it doesn't bias. Because it's not a simple, oh, everything will go, you know, tits up if you haven't got homogeneity variance. It just, it's like, well, it biases these things, it doesn't bias the other things. If you're only interested in what your actual beta is, then it really it doesn't matter whether you have normality and homogeneity variance. If you're interested in p-values and confidence intervals, it does. But of course, there are easy ways to you know, correct your confidence intervals. You can bootstrap them, or you can use, um, there are ways of computing standard errors that are resistant to heteroscedasticity and things like that. So if you want, you can get onto quite complex topics like bootstrapping and things like that. And, and it very easily just shows, well, all bootstrapping is a way to accurately estimate your standard errors. And if you accurately estimate them, then your confidence intervals and p's will be fine. So you can stop worrying about homogeneity. Uh, pretty much the same applies for normality. Uh, in the sense that you, know, you, can, you can start explaining what does and doesn't matter. So uh, again, if your sample is big enough, normality is not going to make any difference as long uh, because of the central limit theorem. But if you're interested in kind of optimal estimates, then normality in your residuals will matter. But again, you can, all I'm, the point I'm trying to make here is if you've understood these five concepts, then you can start getting onto really technical stuff in quite a non-complicated way. Because if you, if you understand what confidence interval is, it's quite straightforward to just say, well, it biases them or it doesn't bias them, and that's what matters. 
you can start looking at the effect that outliers have. So outliers will bias variance and sums of squares, therefore they're going to bias your test parameters and they're going to uh, bias effect size estimates and things like that. So in a way, outliers are, are you know, probably more important things to worry about most of the time than things like normality and homogeneity variance. And like I said, you can sort of you know, get into something quite straightforward like, well, it's not straightforward conceptually, but in terms of applying a bootstrap in SPSS, you know, you, you tick a box and you'll get uh, robust uh, confidence intervals around your parameters and stuff. So all this kind of worry and woe about have I met these assumptions, there are very easy solutions to, to get around them. So it becomes more a matter of just understanding when it matters, when it doesn't matter. And, you know, if you want to err on the side of caution, just bootstrap everything and you'll be fine. So my summary, uh, I think the general linear model is a useful framework for teaching the kinds of statistics that get taught in undergraduate psychology and hopefully other disciplines. Otherwise, uh, this has been a bit of a pointless exercise for all of you. Um, maybe, yeah, well, maybe skip over that. Um, if you understand those five constructs, then I think to, unless you're going to get into really complicated things, then you pretty much understand any statistical model. And those five constructs will even set you in good stead for going on and doing structural equation modeling and things like that, because you'll understand parameters and standard errors and confidence intervals and la 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 la. So all you really need to know is models, you know, you're, you're predicting outcomes from models, those models have error. You need to concern yourself with how well your model fits. Uh, models are defined by <coughs> parameters. Parameters have to be estimated in, in some way, whether that's ordinary least squares or maximum likelihood or whatever. They're estimated in some way. They will vary across samples, so the parameter estimates you get in one sample will be different from another. But they tell us something about the true size of that parameter in the population. And especially if you look at confidence intervals, that's kind of what their uh, use is, really. They can be significance tested. Uh, they can be biased, as can their confidence intervals and p-values, but the biases that you get can quite often be easily corrected uh, in relatively simple ways. So that's all I wanted to say other than uh, thank you for not falling asleep in this hot room. <laughs> <laughs>